Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Home-based primary care, or the modern-day house call, delivers primary care to the most medically complex homebound patients in society. Primary care programs at home can significantly reduce medical emergencies or fragmented care, missed appointments, and poor control of chronic health conditions. Today, my guest is Dr. Eric DeYoung, Chief of Geriatrics at Capital Caring Health. He's going to provide details about home-based primary care programs, including patient eligibility, services provided, the types of health providers who deliver the care, and how this type of program supports patients and their families. So welcome, Dr. DeYoung, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Cheryl. Good afternoon. Okay, well, what I'd like to start out with, I mentioned a little bit uh, just in a summary of why primary care at home programs are necessary. And so Could you kind of elaborate on that and then expand a little bit and explain to us the types of patients that are most likely to receive this kind of care? Sure. So across the United States, there are at least 2 million elders who are homebound, who really are unable to get out of the house. These are people with serious illness and home-limited functional status. It's hard for them to get to the doctor. Um, And so really home-based primary care is the best way to take care of them. Um, Certain types of patients kind of stand out. They tend to be in their 80s and 90s, so even over 100. Um, Typical patient might be someone who I saw recently who was 95 years old, who had a recent stroke, have some dementia, have trouble walking up and down stairs, and really struggle to get to the doctor's office. So if they were left to their own devices, they might have to call 911 for urgent or emergency care. Um, but home-based primary care allows you to go see them before the crisis hits, before something unstable happens, and keep them in their home where they really want to be. And I had mentioned, as I said in my introduction, have you? can you even elaborate a little bit on what you have discovered in terms of of the success. I'm just. I want to start out with success right away in terms of or of what kind of problems are eliminated as a result of you seeing these uh, these uh, patients in in their homes. 
Sure. So on a, a recent house call that I made, a, a patient who had diabetes, in his case, it, he was 85 years old, um, had really unstable diabetes. So we are able with the team approach, again, it's a doctor, nurse practitioner, social worker. Uh, we really visit that patient and help keep their diabetes from getting out of control, which might land them in the emergency room. Another good example is reducing caregiver stress and really coaching caregivers on how they can best take care of their loved ones so that the caregivers feel comfortable managing the medications, managing wounds, knowing how to reach you on a 24-7 basis, again, so they can avoid going to the emergency room in a crisis. And how then are patients referred to the program? You're affiliated with Capital Caring Health. Uh, uh, what What is the process for families or the, I'm assuming it's probably more the families uh, who want to get in touch with you? What is that process for doing so? Yeah, so sure. There are many ways that you can have patients referred to a home-based primary care program. Um, a lot of it is word of mouth in the community. Um, so families and or friends may hear about a program and they can call us, but we get a lot of referrals from home health staff, the nurses and social workers or therapists who are already in the home and they recognize this patient is going to struggle to get to the doctor's office. Um, also, we get a lot of referrals from current the patient's current doctors who maybe the patient is a no-show in their office frequently and they realize that home-based primary care would really work better for them. And even social service agencies, the social workers who are out there identifying high-risk and vulnerable people will refer to the program. And then it's up to the patient and family, often it's the family member, to call us and kind of let us know that they're interested in our services. And then we do an intake and enroll that patient and try to get out to see them, you know, within a week or two. And you had mentioned already the ages of several of the patients that you've been seeing or are continuing to see must an older adult be a certain age to be served in this kind of program? Yeah, so there's a wide range of age in uh, home-based primary care programs. Um, at Capital Caring Health, we've actually decided to kind of limit it to people 55 plus. Most of our patients are over 65, and it just turns out that elders tend to be more disabled and more homebound once they're into their 80s and 90s. So the average age in our program is about 84 but we can take people a wide range, and I've actually had patients up to 112 years old, you know, and as young as 60. That's quite a range. And and also, not only age, but how about disease diagnosis or, or health condition? Uh, is, is that a criteria for treatment? Yeah, so house calls are generally not, at least in geriatrics, not given just for convenience. We, we do expect the patient to have some sort of serious chronic illness that would benefit from house calls. They also need to live in our zip codes. So we have a, a, a limited number of zip codes that we serve because of driving time. And if you spend too much time in the car, you're not able to see very many patients. Patients do need to be home limited, not necessarily homebound, but limited to home where it's hard for them to get out and about on their own. Um, and they also need to be willing to choose our team as their primary care provider um, because we like to coordinate all of the services that they need all, and they can uh, have a lot of different specialist doctors. They can keep their specialist doctors, um, but we actually do ask that folks see us as their primary provider. And finally, they need some sort of health insurance that will you know, be able to cover the cost of the house calls. And I was wondering if 
if there are certain diagnoses or, or conditions that an older adult might have that primary care at home services are just not uh, the right fit, even though you've given all of these situations and conditions that would certainly warrant it. But are there certain um, situations where it's, it's just going to be necessary for them to make an actual office visit? What would you tell us? Sure. Um, you know, there's no specific diagnoses. If a, if a person is home limited and they're interested in home-based primary care, we're open to serving them. There are a few situations where we've had to either not offer care or stop. And that, you know, if people are homeless and they don't have a home for us to visit, we, we are not able, we're not, not currently able to do house calls. If there's an unsafe home environment, and that does rarely happen, where there's either a person or some reason in the home that it's not safe for the staff to visit, or if the patient or family actually refuse care. But other than those unusual circumstances, um, if someone has a serious chronic illness and they're home limited and they live in our zip codes and they want our care, we can serve them. And in the event that one of or more of these situations that you just talked about occurs, do you provide some kind of alternative for care? How, do you recommend that they what they do? How how is that handled? What what has been the situation? Sure. So if someone either is not eligible for home-based primary care or for some reason the home is not a safe place, we actually can give them referrals to office-based primary care providers. And there are a number of them, you know, in most people's communities. Um, There also are skilled home health services where on an episodic basis, not necessarily long-term, we can try to send out a nurse, PT or OT or social worker. And again, if the home is reasonably safe, sometimes we'll send those services out um, on the short term. Um, but for medical services, it often is an office-based primary care provider. So it sounds like, at least in where you are at Capital Caring Health, you have a whole network of of providers and organizations that you can reach out to in case it's just not possible for you and your colleagues to to serve the, the patients. Is that correct? That's correct. And another thing that's happened in the pandemic is there's been a whole new um you know, growth of televideo where you can do virtual visits. And so sometimes we'll refer folks for home-based palliative care via televideo, or and we can ourselves do televideo visits. So if there's some reason a house call doesn't work because it's too far away, or there's a safety concern, we can still offer potentially televideo visits. And that helps to keep, at least in the early days of the pandemic, the, the patient safe and in many cases, as I said, before the vaccine, even the provider. So uh, sounds like a win-win situation. Let's turn a little bit because you already talked about the team of, of providers. Help us understand who are the primary care at home providers? Um, I guess that would be the first part. And then are they always the same provider that goes to see the patient? Or how does that process work in terms of once you hear and you get a referral and you begin to determine that this is someone that you can see, what happens next? Sure. Great question. So across the the country, there is a growing movement of home-based primary care teams, but the operative word is team. These, These patients and their families have a lot of medical issues, sometimes mental health issues, nursing care issues, social issues. So the way to take good care of this kind of high-risk population is to have a team in place. So the 
providers on the core team tend to be nurse practitioner or physician assistant, also called PA, a physician who can help supervise and manage, manage the more complex cases with that team, an RN, often an office-based RN who can take phone calls and manage clinical calls from the patients and their families, social work services to be help, helpful to set up social supports in that patient's home, like a home health aid or counseling about insurance or financial issues, uh, relief of caregiver stress. And then uh, you need some sort of coordinator, someone who can schedule visits and arrange x-rays and arrange blood tests, make sure they see that specialist, make sure they have the equipment they need at home. So a kind of team coordinator. I'd say those are the five core disciplines for home-based primary care teams. And then we tap into all sorts of other services in the community. There's probably at least 12 other spokes of the wheel, as I often think about it, such as pharmacy, medical equipment, the emergency room, using, having a partner hospital, home rehabilitation, um, skilled home nursing, um, transportation. There's a lot of other services you have to tap into, but the core team is the NP, the doctor, the social worker, the coordinator, and the RN. And that team needs to be available on, in some way 24 hours a day so that they know that, that they can reach you or your covering staff uh, whenever they need help. In terms of seeing the providers for each visit, you know, we I find that continuity of care and people who really know that patient and family member well is really crucial for kind of making good decisions. So it's the same team and the same group of providers who get to know you over time. Um, but that team has several people and we will sometimes have certain types of staff visit depending on what the problem is. If it's a really complex or unstable medical problem, that might be more when the doctor goes out. The nurse practitioners do a lot of the urgent visits um, and routine visits and kind of counseling of patients and families and so on. Um, but it is the same team and continuity of care of that team over years really helps families and patients feel some trust and confidence in the team. And I just wanted to step back for a second, Dr. DeYoung. When you have a patient that is going to be, you're going to, your team is going to be seeing that patient, are you the person who makes the initial visit and, and, and kind of collects the information, does what's known as a history and physical, or is it a nurse or some other uh, team provider? I was just kind of trying to, again, as part of the process, of not only how you get a person into the system, but then does your team meet on a regular basis, you know, uh, virtually or whatever, to kind of, you know, continue to uh, assess the care of that patient? Just, again, a part of this process. Sure, all good questions. So once they're in our system and they, they've decided they want to join the practice, there's some things done before the initial visit by the team. We ask for some medical history and some old records to start building a record for that patient in our system. Then the initial visit is a really key moment where either the doctor or the nurse practitioner go out and do a full history and physical. That's talking to them about all their medical problems, assessing the social and functional situation, doing a physical exam, perhaps getting blood draws or x-rays ordered, 
it often is about a 90-minute visit on that initial visit to really develop a understanding of the patient and the family and the home environment. And then after that, we make visits as needed, sometimes as often as every week or two if they're really sick or unstable. Um, but if they're stable and doing well, we might see them um, every couple months. And so a typical home visit then can really vary, I guess, in terms of the focus of the patient's needs for that particular visit and maybe even the time? Or or are there certain uh, things that you do or practices that are included in every uh, every typical home visit? Uh, is there variation? What, what would you tell us about what to expect for the patient and, and his or her family? Sure. So there are different types of staff. So if it's a medical visit, either by the doctor or the nurse practitioner, there tends to be a pretty common rhythm where you would walk into the house um, and sit down with the patient and their caregiver do a history and exam, talk about the active medical problems. I often like to have an open-ended question of, you know, what's most troubling them or how can we help you? And then focus on the active medical problems. Um, and then you kind of close by, after doing a physical exam, we actually write out a, a, a list of all the instructions that we have for them to between now and the next visit. And that's more the medical visit. We may order x-rays or blood tests to be done in the home, which we which are available. Um, we might order a specialist consult with a cardiologist or some other type of specialty doctor. Um, that usually will happen in an office, so they have to kind of do a, a field trip for that. That's the medical visit. There's other types of visits, though. There may be occasion for a nurse to make a visit, and that nurse might focus on their medications or their wound care or some specific nursing care education. Um, and then there are social work visits. And if the issue is really a caregiver stress or a need for more daily support, that social worker will do a different kind of visit focused really on how that patient is doing from a psychological and social perspective. Are they safe in the home? Um, and something a little bit different than the medical visit. So there's different types of staff, but they generally have a similar routine for their discipline. Is the family usually a present, a family member or a care partner? Yeah, so the family caregiver, usually the primary person, whether it's the healthcare power of attorney or whoever is doing the daily care, I think is a critical partner because they're there 24 hours a day. And they're at least, I would say I spend at least half my time on my visits with the family caregiver as much as with the patient, making sure they understand the patient's medicines, answering their questions, making sure they're doing okay, they know how to reach us you know, after hours. The family caregiver is kind of your crucial partner for keeping that patient safe at home, and they have to manage things, you know, 24 hours a day. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, over the course of this past year, you've certainly described what's happened in, in these types of visits in, in different, um, depending on which of the needs of the patient that you're, you're meeting. But when the pandemic hit, and obviously things changed, especially before the vaccine. Did the nature of these home visits change? And is it continuing to evolve as people are getting vaccinated? Uh, tell us what you've seen over the past year and, and what you expect insofar as these home visits. Wow. So these patients are homebound, right? So they have trouble getting to doctors without or nurse practitioners without a lot of struggle. 
So we made a commitment from the beginning of our program, and we actually started January of 2020, and the pandemic hit in March. So after just a couple months, we realized we would have to make decisions about whether we continue to make house calls. And Capital Caring Health made a commitment that we'll continue to make house calls and see people in person if it, it was needed. But it changed how we did things. We had to make sure our staff had proper personal protective equipment called PPE. And so we had to, before any visit, uh, we had to make sure our staff had gloves, masks, face shields, and we screened that home for anyone who might have COVID or have COVID symptoms. Um, if there was a high-risk situation where the patient was doing okay, we would do televideo visits. So we would make in-person visits with protective equipment. However, that took a lot of extra screening and you know, time, honestly. So we would also offer video visits if we felt the patient was stable enough to do a video visit. I would say in the first six months of the pandemic, we probably made about half of our visits via video and probably about half via in-person. Now it's back down to, I would say, three quarters in person and maybe a quarter of visits are via video. And those are ones that can work with video and you may not need to drive back and forth if you just have a brief visit you need to do with someone and you don't need a, a thorough physical exam. And are you in your visits now giving the vaccine to your patients and maybe even their their caregivers or family members? Uh, what's that situation now that the vaccine is available? It's a great, great point. Actually, for the first three months of that, the vaccine, honestly, homebound elders were kind of a forgotten population. They, they were not receiving the vaccine for, I would say, the first two to three months of the vaccine availability. It was being given in clinics or large hospitals or large vaccination sites, and homebound elders, by definition, are not going to be able to get there. So we heard a lot of concern from our patients and families that they were kind of out of the loop of getting vaccines. And we were, we did not have a supply of vaccine at Capital Caring Health either, nor did most house call programs around the country. So I think it was an area of the vaccination rollout that um, frankly missed kind of some of the homebound populations. But in the last couple of weeks, there is now supplies and a lot more activity both around the country in Virginia, Maryland, and DC trying to provide homebound elders with vaccines. And in fact, this actual week, we're in discussions with the state of Virginia to get a supply for our program. So we have ourselves not started giving it directly. We're hoping to do that in the next couple of weeks. Um, but we have had our social workers and other staff help some of our patients who can get out of the house, even in a wheelchair. We've helped them arrange appointments with some of the community sites. So I would say roughly 30 or 40% of our patients have gotten the vaccine including those who live in assisted livings, um, which, which got a supply of the vaccine. But I think there's still work to be done on the homebound vaccination. And I, I'm assuming, but I should really ask, uh, that you and your fellow health team providers have all been received both vaccinations or whatever, the one vaccination, if it was J&J. &J. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Our Capital Caring Health primary care house call team, all of our staff who make house calls have, have been double vaccinated. Most of that occurred in uh, January. Mm -hmm. So our staff are feeling more comfortable and safe and our, and our patients and families can feel reassured that we're, we are all vaccinated. Um, that was really done in, in large part with the help of the Inova Health System in Northern Virginia, but there are now other ways of getting uh, all of our staff vaccinated. 
I was going to ask you one more question before we take a, a break. You've already alluded to this a little bit with respect to like diagnostic procedures, chest X-ray or EKG or EEG uh, um, or laboratory work. Uh, how, how does that occur? Uh, if that's needed for your patient, do one of these technicians then come to the house also? Um, how does that work? Right. So there are some tests that we can do in the home um, and our direct you know, primary care staff sometimes will order or can order x-rays, for example, or ultrasounds like an echo of the heart. Um, EKGs can be ordered and done in the home. And there are private companies that we partner with who go out and can do the echo EKG or blood tests or x-rays at home. The blood tests are a little bit more challenging because they're not actually reimbursed to do that procedure at home very much at all by Medicare. So we have some of our own staff do that. Our nurse or our nurse practitioners will draw blood. Sometimes we'll have that patient do a bit of a, a field trip to a local lab if they are somewhat mobile, where they can get out and do that. More complex tests like CAT scans and MRIs or other scopes like the GI doctors do, do need to be still done at the hospital or at an outpatient office. And so we will order a CAT scan or MRI or procedure, and they have to set up a field trip and transportation for that to be done at the hospital center. It's definitely a very complex uh, process that you have to do with every patient, depending on, uh, on what their condition is, correct? Yeah, there's a lot of extra work of coordination and time and effort done behind the scenes. So you, we might get, you know, be able to bill Medicare, say, for a house call for the doctor and P going out. But there is a tremendous amount of coordination and administrative work that honestly is not well-funded and requires support either from philanthropy or other ways to try to get these teams um, kind of, you know, fully staffed. And that extra coordination work is, you know, at least as much time as the time that we spend in the home. Indeed. And, and of course, obviously, the focus for you all is to make sure the patient gets quality of care. So, well, we're going to take a short break right now. We are talking with Dr. Eric DeYoung, Chief of Geriatrics at Capital Caring Health, and you're listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Eric DeYoung, Chief of Geriatrics at Capital Caring Health, and we're learning a lot about primary care at home program at uh, Capital Caring. And so, Dr. DeYoung, before we kind of expand on some of the things you've already mentioned, why don't you share with our listeners a little bit more information as to how folks can get in touch with you, especially if they might have patients who would be have the appropriate health condition criteria or dis disease diagnosis that would make them eligible for the program? 
Sure. Thanks, Cheryl. So our, our website, if you want to learn more about Capital Caring Health and our primary care at home program is www.capitalcaring.org. That's www.capitalcaring.org. And our 1-800 number, where you can also talk to a person live if you want, is 1-800-869-2136. And is there a lot of information on this website that refers to many of the things that we've been talking about on there? Sure. So the website will talk about capital caring health overall, but there's about six or eight major services capital caring health offers, and our primary care at home program is one of them. It will talk about the geography that we serve, because as I mentioned earlier, we do serve certain zip codes and areas in the Northern Virginia, D.C., and Maryland area. Uh, Because of driving time, we're not able to serve everywhere. And it'll have information about geography, type of service, and who's eligible. All right. Well, I want to get back again in terms of this process. Dr. DeYoung, you had talked a little earlier about consultations with physician specialists. Explain a little more about how, when you or your colleagues assess that that's necessary, how is that handled? Does the specialist actually visit the patient's home or do they have to go to see them in the office? What happens in that kind of circumstance? Sure. So when we take on a new patient, Cheryl, we will kind of ask them if they have any specialists. And if they have existing specialists who they have a good relationship with, we will continue to work with those specialists that they have. If we find a new problem, say a heart problem, and we think we need a cardiology opinion, we have a kind of list of local preferred providers who we will call um, and make a consult. Um, We'll write a a brief referral, explain what the problem is, and coordinate that follow-up appointment. The follow-up appointment, though, does usually occur in the specialist's office. Most specialists are not making house calls. Um, The exception to that would be the podiatrists, the foot doctors. Some dentists make house calls, um, but most of the specialists, we have to arrange a field trip, and that might require setting up transportation or, or making sure that they have an appointment time that's convenient for them. And then that specialist will see them and give information back to us about how to help best take care of them. But the overarching point is that the primary care team is the kind of captain of the ship. We kind of decide when we need a specialist input, and we incorporate that into the care of the whole patient. They may have four or five specialists, and the job of our team is to put that all together into one plan of care for the patient. Well, your your comments about you know referrals to uh, physician specialists kind of leads me to another question about physicians. Um, might it be the case that before your team began to see this patient, they had another team of physicians, a, a primary care physician, and maybe other specialists? And now, because of their age or diagnosis, your team has. Is, is taking over the care. What is that process for coordinating the whole uh, continuity of care, if you will, with these other uh, physicians? And I'm also thinking if there are certain situations where a physician has to take the lead in, in a certain decision or whatever, how, how does that work? So talk to us about the coordination of care with physicians for the patient. Sure. 
when a new patient joins our program, it's really important that we respect, you know, the relationship and previous care that they've gotten. And if they have a number of specialists, I prefer to continue to in include those specialists in the patient's care. Sometimes if you're making house calls on a regular basis, they might not have to go out and see those specialists quite as often if you communicate by phone or get their input and kind of can be their eyes and ears in the field. Um, in terms of primary care and geriatrics, I, I do think it's important to have one captain of the ship where there's a, you know, kind of a single primary care team. And so generally, I think that team should take the lead in making decisions with the patient and their family, um, kind of talking about either if it happens to be end of life care or whether they should have surgery or not. You pull in all the specialist input and then the, the primary care team helps that patient and family make a decision based on their values and what's important to them. So I, I see this primary care team as kind of the hub of the wheel and that we tap into all the other specialists and people who can give us expert input um, and then make a, a, a decision based on that input as to what's best for the patient. Well, and now you're talking about the, the hub of the wheel, and I'm thinking of another spoke, as it, as it were, is what happens if hospital, hospitalization is recommended for a patient? Because that brings in yet another, and nowadays in hospitals there are hospitalists, uh, who's then in charge uh, insofar as the patient care? Uh, is it still this health team, or what would you tell us? Sure. So the primary care team may say they see the nurse practitioner sees a patient and they're very sick and unstable at home. We will make the recommendation that they should go to the emergency room or the hospital. And sometimes you can do that with a private um, ambulance that might come in one or two hours, but sometimes you need 911. Sometimes the family will drive them to the hospital. But I really view it as important that the primary care team is involved in that decision because the hospital has hazards and you have to make sure that the benefits of going to the hospital are greater than the risks or hazards of going to the hospital, especially a frail older person who might have dementia and be at risk of delirium or bed sores. Um, so you really only want to use the hospital when absolutely needed. But if it is needed, our primary care at home team should help coordinate that transition to the ER. For example, on last week, we sent a patient to the ER with pneumonia and a lot of fluid on his lung. We called the emergency room. I spoke with the doctor who was going to receive that patient so they knew exactly why that patient was coming in to kind of provide a smooth transition to the emergency room in the hospital. But as you said, most hospitals are using hospitalists. Once that patient is there, the direct care is provided generally by a hospitalist team. And we keep in touch either by a drop-in visit every few days or by phone so they know what kind of follow-up care and house call um, uh, kind of as we can make afterwards. So we kind of make sure there's a smooth transition in, and then we receive them uh, and try to visit them within two to three days after being in the hospital. And then if the patient then is discharged, then do you work with the, the hospital discharge planner then to, again, help them transition back home? Yes. Yeah, so we'll, we'll be in touch by phone often in the last couple of days of the hospital stay to discuss what equipment is needed, what skilled home services are needed, when we're going to see them, what medications they're going home on, and we'll try to, again, have a smooth transition home. Um, usually seeing that patient, again, in person within two to three days, because that post-discharge time at home is a, is a very high-risk time for them to bounce back to the hospital 
or have the wrong medications because they're confused about their old meds and their new meds. So we like to get out and see them within two or three days. Dr. DeYoung, you also mentioned uh, a moment ago about end-of-life care, and I, I wanted to focus on this issue as well with so many uh, or not so many, but it could be a, a number of different physicians and healthcare providers being involved. Who takes the lead maybe in the whole process of advanced directive instructions and is if that's needed or or maybe stepping back a moment, do you uh, does your team get involved in those kinds of issues as well for for your patients? So advanced directives or kind of making your wishes clear about end-of-life decisions is a kind of core part of what Capital Caring Health as an organization works on, both in our primary care, palliative, and hospice services. But in the primary care at home team, I see that as a core duty of that primary team. Um, on my initial visit, I will talk to the patient and their family member about who's who's their person, who's their power of attorney for medical decisions. And I see that as the most crucial first step. And we will ask that question and document that so that every provider involved in the care knows who the decision maker is. And then I will bring up, especially if they're very sick or I think that they may be in the last few months or year of life, I'll ask them about their wishes about CPR for cardiac arrest, going on a ventilator if they have you know, lung failure, tube feeding, um, those kinds of difficult but important decisions so I can hear their values and their wishes ahead of time. Um, I think that that is a core duty of all providers, but I think the captain of the ship, again, the primary care team can put it all together and hear from the patient and the family in the comfort of their own home uh, what their wishes are. Now, that may change over time. It may be that today they're thinking they would like everything possible done, going to the ICU on machines. But uh, six months or 12 months from now, if things change, they may change their mind. And so I see this as an ongoing conversation where you're constantly updating their advanced directives to reflect what their wishes are at that moment. Did you also find, again, in the past year when we when hospitals were having to deal with the whole issue of, of the coronavirus and and a higher uh, possibility of, of death. Did you does did your team also still have close contact then with the physicians in the hospital uh, in terms of these decisions, or how did that work? Yeah, so we were both working in the hospital. Some of our staff were actually were in the hospitals working with some of the um, COVID nineteen patients. But our primary care at home program, for example, had five or six patients with COVID nineteen. We actually took care of many of them at home. I think one or two of them ended up in the hospital, but we were looking at advanced directives and their goals of care and whether they wanted to be at home and not go to the hospital, or if we could manage them with oxygen and support supportive care. And actually, most of them actually survived um, with home-based medical care. Um, but the one silver lining that COVID-19 may have had um, is that it did raise awareness, I think, Cheryl, of having to face these decisions about a ventilator, for example. I think the decision to go on a ventilator is probably much more well understood now than it was a year ago for elderly people who may or may not want to go through that level of invasive care. And so people thought hard about whether they wanted to go through that. Some did decide they wanted to go through that, but a, a lot did not. And that's important that they were aware of that decision. 
I wanted to hear a little bit more about what uh, your team members' interaction is with the family caregiver or the family uh, caregiver partner and other family members. Do, how much time at a visit do you spend with that person um, as compared to the, the patient? Yeah, so I, it's crucial to have, I think every patient, especially vulnerable, more home-limited folks, needs some person in their life who really advocates for them, cares for them, keeps track of their meds, you know, is available as an emergency. And so I always try to find out who is your person, who is the primary contact, and they may be in the home, they might be out of town, but um, you need to make sure you identify who that primary contact is, number one. And on most visits, I will, and our team will engage and coach those caregivers on the patient's plan of care. I would say at least half my time, and the house call I made today actually was similar, was a good example of that, where I would go back and forth between the patient and his wife, asking them each often the same question to see if I got the same answer, and getting that uh, spouse's input on how her how the patient was doing. And sometimes information, especially if folks have dementia, is more valuable coming from the family caregiver. So it, it feels like a dyad where almost half of our time is with that caregiver and half of our time is with the patient. If there are treatments and that, do you teach? Or do you have other uh, members of the team come and maybe teach if they have to change a dressing or uh, do something with an IV or something like that, um, intravenous feeding? Uh, is that also part of kind of health education? Yeah, so our team, the nurse, the nurse practitioner, sometimes the doctor, but more often it's the nurse or the NP do a lot of the education of family caregivers, and that can be about their medications. I was on a house call last week where there were three family members. You know, the son was managing all the medicine bottles. A daughter-in-law was able to help with wound care, um, and another person on the phone was coordinating all the home health care um, and the aides. So you kind of identify which family member is doing what, and then you help teach and train them about that particular skill. Your team expands all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So what what is the average length of time that patients remain in the primary care at home program? Right. So this is fascinating in that some patients are extremely sick and unstable when we meet them at the beginning of our house call, you know, time with them. And they might live just a few weeks or a couple months. They might be in hospice along with primary care at home. But some of our patients um, over the years of my career, I've had for over 10 years where they are home limited or very ill, but with good home-based primary care and team approach and keeping them out of the hospital, um, they can be stable and do, do well for many years. The average, when you actually do the math and look at the average length of time in patients in house call programs around the United States is in the ballpark of 18 to 24 months. But again, with a wide range from one to two months to over 10 years. And then take us to the next step, Dr. DeYoung, of how, so assuming that the, the home care program is no longer needed, is there a whole care plan then that's um, discussed? Are you available if something happens in an emergency? What what kind of discharge planning, so to speak, occurs now in connection with the primary care at home program services for both the patient and their family? 
I guess the first thing I would say is that I would say 99% of the time, the patients stay in the program until their last day of life. So the, these patients tend to have serious chronic illness that's not curable um, in most cases. Um, and so our commitment is to keep them and, and take care of them until the last day of life. Um, if for some reason, and it's happened occasionally, but it's rare, they improve dramatically where they're independent, maybe they get back to driving and they're you know, independent in the community. And we say, well, you know, house calls really isn't needed for you anymore. We would provide communication to a, a new office-based primary care provider and send them our, our note, a summary of the medications and hand them off to that new primary care provider. Um, there's occasional cases where people are discharged or exit from the program other than through from death. And that is can either be a patient and family choice or if it's an unsafe home environment. And in those cases, again, we make a referral to an office space provider um, or the patient and family may choose a different provider. I would say that's, again, less than 1% of our patients that happens. Most of the time we're with people uh, until the last day of life. And and to this point, as you said, most of the people, it's the last day of life. You had also talked about capital caring, offering palliative care and hospice services. Now, of those areas within capital caring health, does the 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 team members kind of transition then to those areas if that's appropriate for the uh, the next phase of the the for the patient care? Yeah, so generally our primary care at home staff are are, are also doing the palliative care themselves. Um, but if the patient is terminally ill and they need hospice services, and we think they're eligible through Medicare for hospice services, we will make a referral to often to our capital caring health hospice team. But it's an addition, Cheryl. It's not so much a transition. We we stay as the primary care team and we stay involved and we continue to care for them because of our relationship. We add hospice services, which often is very helpful to the patient and family because hospice nurses can visit 24 hours a day. They have pastoral care and spiritual support, bereavement support. So it's really an addition to the primary care at home team to add the hospice services. Um, and we just have to make sure we communicate well and those two teams um, are on the same page. You know, the medication list is, is shared and that everything is done in a joint fashion. Usually then the, the patient still continues to be at home rather than going to a, a hospice facility. Is, is that correct? I just wanted to understand that. That's correct, Cheryl. So 95% of hospice care is done with home hospice. So most of our patients will stay at home, um, even if they're in hospice care. Um, a small percentage, if the patient has really severe symptoms or the family is uncomfortable with them dying at home, will go to an inpatient hospice unit. And Capital Caring Health has four of those in the region, um, two, two in Northern Virginia, um, two actually one one in D.C. and another one opening up in D.C. Um, and kind of one in Maryland. So we can use the inpatient hospice units often for the last week or two of life if needed, but most of the time we try to arrange it so the patient can be at home. You mentioned earlier about uh, insurance covering this program. Could you elaborate a little bit on the types of insurance uh, that covers uh, primary care at home and what happens if if the patient doesn't have insurance? Is how, how is that handled? Yeah, so 
in most of our patients have Medicare or Medicaid or some other payer. These are mostly folks over, again, they mo tend to be over 65, often in their 80s and 90s, a few younger people. But Medicare has codes where they cover paying for house calls under fee for service. Medicaid also will, sometimes it's a less reimbursement, but Medicaid will cover that. So we can um, serve people who have Medicare or Medicaid. And then other payers like Blue Cross Blue Shield, United, Humana, um, many of them will also pay for house calls. Um, we have to make sure that our providers and Capital Caring Health is kind of on their, their list of you know, preferred providers. And that's something that you can talk to our staff about. Um, but we make arrangements with those different health insurance companies to, uh, to, to be able to bill for our house calls. If a patient actually has no insurance, um, right now our primary care at home team is, is needing them to have some mechanism for paying for house calls. So some type of coverage that will cover the house calls. Um, we, we do have some charity care funds through the Capital Caring Health and we can consider applying that. But in general, we are looking for some mode of coverage for the primary care at home program. Okay. So now I'm sure our listeners are interested in finding out more about the days, the times that the, the program uh, team uh, provides services and what about weekends? And I was also wondering what happens if emergency care is required, that somebody uh, needs a, some to see a provider on an emergency basis. I, explain kind of when you are when you and your team members are available. Sure. So there's different kind of levels of care. Monday through Friday, where our offices are open, we make house calls, you know, nine to five generally, Monday through Friday. Um, that's for both routine, but also for urgent or emergency visits. We can get out same day and visit patients. Usually it's the nurse practitioners who are making those urgent or emergent calls during the week. You know, at 5 p.m. and on the weekends, we have a live 24-7 after hours team uh, staffed by both nurse practitioners and nurses, and they're connected to our electronic health record. They can see what happened during the day. And so our patients and families can call and contact our, our live 24-7 um, team for advice and kind of, um, you know, coaching. You know, for example, should I go to the emergency room or not? Can you, you know, I have a cough and a fever. We can prescribe antibiotics over the phone and then see them the next day. So we'll usually be able to do urgent visits within 24 hours, um, again, Monday through, Monday through Friday, but have 24-7 live advice line. If a patient is in hospice care as well with us, Capital Caring Health hospice nurses actually can visit 24-7 if needed for a, a pain or complex problem. So if the patient, that's a great benefit of the Medicare hospice um, benefit, that they fund that kind of nurse availability 24 hours a day. And you had mentioned already certain zip codes, but can you just kind of describe the geographic areas that the primary care at home program covers in the metropolitan area so people can kind of get a sense of whether they should contact you or not. Sure. So um, we've had two teams that started last January, and they, they covered Northwest D.C. and some areas in Chevy Chase, Montgomery County. Um, there's about six zip codes. Then another team in Northern Virginia, kind of the Falls Church, Arlington, McLean area. And those two teams have been in action for about 15 months now. And just in the past month, Capital Caring Health has opened up three new teams in Manassas, kind of Winchester, and Alexandria North area. So if you want to know exactly which zip codes those are, are 
available, you can check our, our website or call us. Again, the Capital Caring Health website is www.capitalcaring.org. And the 800 number is 800-869-2136. So right now it's parts of DC and Montgomery County and a good amount of Northern Virginia. And we're hoping as this year goes along that we will open up in more regions. And you said that when people call that phone number, there's a live person that answers the phone? That's correct. Uh, 1-800 number. You have to go through a little phone tree, but you can get to a live person who can give you advice about the geography and the exact zip codes that we serve. All right. Well, we're almost out of time. I just wanted to kind of get your feedback about the future. You talked a little bit about the past and what's happened in the pandemic do you foresee that primary care at home is has continued to change uh, since the start of the pandemic? Or do you predict more changes? What would you tell us? Well, I guess the main thing that comes to mind, Cheryl, is that I think the pandemic has revealed kind of some weaknesses in our healthcare system and made it even more clear that delivering care to the patient and the, and the family in the home is probably safer and having them come to a crowded emergency room, crowded clinic waiting area, or the hospital. So I think the need is only going to increase in terms of delivering mobile medical care to people at home. There's actually a whole movement afoot to do hospital-level care at home. So you would have a primary care team at home, and then when the people got really sick, you could start doing hospital-level care at home. It's been uh, worked on over the last 20 years, actually, out of Johns Hopkins and other institutions, and now is being embraced by Medicare itself, by many other payers and hospital systems to increase and bring that hospital-level care to the home and even add that to house basic house calls. Um, I think the televideo is here to stay and being able to do quick televideo visits for urgent questions or monitoring vital signs. Um, I think that's a change that is here to stay. And then the population of growing elders who are more frail and disabled is going to also require more home-based medical care. So think a variety of forces, the population itself growing older and having a lot more need for um, home-based medical care, the pandemic making people more reluctant to go into crowded settings and realizing the home is a safe place to, to do that, and then the innovations and mobile technology and being able to do mobile IV therapy breathing treatments, oxygen, all sorts of things can be done in the home environment. So I think there's, I think hospitals may end up shrinking actually in terms of their total beds once the pandemic quiets down as we do more home-based medical care. And it's so nice to have your doctor in your home. I can't think of a better way. I remember that when I was a kid, the doctor coming. So I congratulate you on this on this important uh, service. So one more time, Dr. DeYoung, what's the best way listeners can learn about primary care at home? So if they want to learn about primary care at home or any of Capital Caring Health's services for folks with advanced illness, it's capitalcaring.org. And then the 800 number is 1-800-869-2136. And thank you for having me. You're welcome. And I want to thank you, Dr. Eric DeYoung, Chief of Geriatrics at Capital Caring Health, for joining me today. If you would like to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, www.agingmattersonline.com. And if you check this site out, you'll learn about all Aging Matters radio and the TV show content. 
as well as finding out that the uh, Aging Matters, including this program, Aging Matters Podcasts, are on Apple and Spotify. And you can subscribe to the Aging Matters monthly email newsletter. That way you can get updates every month about new radio shows and TV episodes. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. You can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. As always, thank you for listening to Aging Matters. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. 